Today we're going to be studying verses 20 to 37. Luke chapter 17, 20 to 37. Before we read, we already, we already said this prayer together, but the Lord's Prayer begins, which most of us know, Our Father who lives in heaven. And we pray to Jesus, to, Jesus wants us to pray that his name, our Father's name, will be hallowed. That means respected, honored, glorified, exalted in our lives. So the first part of the Lord's Prayer is to really point our attention to the name of God. Hallowed be your name. The second part, however, we kind of breeze through and it says, your kingdom come. I used to pray it, thy kingdom come. Some people wonder, is this a, just a statement of reality that his kingdom is coming? Or is it a prayer for his kingdom to come? I think it's both. His kingdom is coming, but I think we are told to ask for God's kingdom to come, just as the worship team sang, come Lord Jesus, come. That's where we get the word Maranatha. It's the very last phrase in the scriptures. Jesus wants us to pray for God's kingdom to come. I have prayed this, oh, most of my church life, for years and years and years. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. The church itself has prayed this for over 2,000 years. But where is it? If we've been praying for his kingdom to come, where is it? I don't see Jesus physically with his troops ruling the world. So where is his kingdom? Sometimes this word kingdom is one of those fancy Christian words that really don't mean anything to us. What does that mean? Does God not answer prayer? Is his kingdom not coming? And you cannot tell me Donald Trump is the answer to this prayer. No. Jesus is the one I want to reign and rule. He's perfect in beauty. He's perfect in grace, in law, in justice, in kindness, in mercy, and love. So where is he? And when is he coming? During his time on earth, he was asked this question often. You can find it in Matthew, you can find it in Mark, Luke, and John, and in our next study, we're going to see this is exactly the question the Pharisees present to him. His answer, I'll have to be honest with you at first, it's very mysterious, it's puzzling, it's cryptic. It's a lot of hints towards different periods or epochs in church history. But don't fret, I'll make it all understandable. You're in good hands. So, let's go to Luke 17, starting in verse 20. Follow along with me. Being asked by the Pharisees when, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, 
he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And a flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Or Jesus more emphatic, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. <laughs> Jesus is very clear, isn't he, sometimes? Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That would be the last time I talked to Jesus, honestly. What in the world? We're going to try to understand this. And before we look into the intricacies of Jesus' answer, we need to define a few things. First thing we need to define is what does Jesus and what do the Jews mean when they use the word kingdom. So let's define the word kingdom. I think it's a very nebulous concept for many. Kingdom includes, number one... The physical and spiritual sphere of Messiah's rule. It's where Jesus as the prince, God's right-hand son who rules in his stead, takes over everything, subjects everything under my, his feet. Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, God is talking to his son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's... The kingdom, according to Scripture. So Messiah means God's anointed king to deliver his people from oppression and bring them back to the promised land to receive in full the promises, physically. To the Jew, this promise of a king was foremost on their mind. They were looking for a political leader. They were looking for a great general like King David. Actually, they were looking for his heir. And they wanted King David's great, 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 great grandson, somebody related to David out of Jesse's stump, the root out of Jesse's stump, to come and pulverize all the nations of the world and bring them into submission under his iron scepter of judgment. And so when Jesus came along, a man who could work amazing miracles, they wondered, is this the man? And so they went up to him and said, tell us, when is the kingdom coming? They wanted to know, is this the guy? Now when Jesus talks about the kingdom, it means more than a mere figuring out of national territorial lines and political rule. It is a new kind of life to Jesus. More precisely, it is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus means by the kingdom. The kingdom for Jesus includes all of those people who are doing what the heavenly Father wants. Obedient disciples are part of the kingdom, which includes their heart, mind, soul, and strength, all of it. The kingdom realm is not limited to a province. It's not limited to a single nation. And it's not even comprised of a single race of people. It is an invitation for all to make a vow of personal loyalty to Christ. It's a vow of loyalty. Jesus says the kingdom is here now waiting for those who want to subject themselves to his rule. It's not the march of powerful armies, soldiers outfitted with swords. The kingdom refers to a heart that loves God. That's what it refers to in the mind of Christ. The Old Testament confirms both of these things. Look at Psalm 47. Psalm 47 says, Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared because he is a great king over all the earth. He subdued people under us, nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us. Sing praises to God. Sing praises, sing praises to our king. For God is the king of all the earth. And then Isaiah 60 says very much the same thing, but... Look at verses 1 through 5, Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. All nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. It's talking about how God is going to take all things for his glory. Verse 11 and 12, your gates shall be opened continually day and night. They shall not be shut, that my people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nations and the kingdoms that will not serve you shall perish. So this is about a literal rule, but it's also about a calling to all the nations to come and honor and respect him. That's what a, the kingdom is. So let's go to Luke 17, because we're going to talk about two questions concerning the kingdom. When is it coming, and where is it going to come? Those are the two questions the Pharisees and the disciples ask. When and where? Jesus is going to answer this in two ways, because he's going to be talking to two groups of people. He's going to say the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here. What? He's going to say the kingdom's already here, but not yet. Already, that answer is going to be first and foremost speaking to the Pharisees about how it's a matter of your heart. Theologically, that means when you understand things from a biblical perspective under God's leadership, the kingdom is established in a person's life when faith occurs. When you believe, the kingdom's established. 
the group that needs to hear and understand this are the Pharisees. They are waiting for the physical appearance of the kingdom. They are an outwardly religious group who measure everything by objective standards. There's a lot of religious people like this. I grew up in a religion like this. You measure if you are a faithful person by what you see. So, for instance, they would, they, it mattered how you dressed, mattered how you behaved, mattered who you associated with, and how you perform, because that's what constitutes true kingdom living. Jesus has first come to invade your heart, take over you from the inside, because the kingdom is entered through faith. When I say not yet, he's going to address this issue of how, when is the kingdom going to come on a physical level? It's not yet here. Before the king comes in glory, before Jesus actually comes to set up his throne on this earth, he needs to prepare a people who are holy, who are humble, before they reign with him. So you could say it like this. When it comes to the kingdom, Inward character is more important to God than outward appearance. Inward character, who you are, is more important to God than how you look on the outside. The group that needs to hear this are the disciples like us who have believed in him but are growing weary. We can't wait for him to come. When are you going to show up? I'm getting tired of this. They want the kingdom now, and out of that desire, they start believing they can usher it in themselves. You know, I'm getting impatient. Maybe, maybe I need to do more to get Jesus to come back. A disciple errs. A disciple falls in error. Actually, a Pharisee falls in error when he judges by what he sees. A disciple falls in error when he judges by what he feels. It's subjective. It's subjective spirituality. And it leads you to believe you really have the power to physically bring in the kingdom. And what you're going to see is we don't. Let's show you here. Let's first go to the Pharisees. Verse 20. If you notice, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. The Jews liked to, they wanted signs. They wanted to know tangibly what is true. Religious people love concrete answers. Tell me, what should we be looking for to know the time is near? Give me the facts. Modern-day Pharisees can't survive without observable facts to gauge their performance and God's actual work. The religious love to control outward things. How long should I wear my hair? How often should I go to church? And are enough things being done to prepare for God's arrival? I want facts. I want to see it. Jesus says, he's going to say to the Pharisees, the arrival of the kingdom can't be observed. That's why what he means, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Pharisees believe progress of the kingdom is based on our effort. Pharisees believe progress of the kingdom is based on our effort. They love the outward show, the pomp, the circumstance, the hard evidence, the revival numbers. 
The Jews had the temple, they had the priesthood, the sacrifices, they had the Torah. They, they assumed because they had all of this, they were already in the kingdom. All that was left to be done was for the Messiah to come, vanquish their enemies, and set up the throne for David. But Jesus says to them, the kingdom of God's already here. It's already in the midst of you. It's here already. What does that mean? To the Pharisees, what is that? To us, what does that mean? I don't see any armies. I don't see a king. And when will God's foes be stomped on? I mean, we watch it all the time. When will ISIS be wiped out? When will righteousness reign in this earth? There's so many people that take the title of Christian, but they are just as wicked as people who don't. When is God going to call hypocrites bluff? I believe Jesus means two things by the kingdom of God's in your midst. Number one, what he's saying is the kingdom of God is entered, can be entered right now. It's a spiritual reality. We enter spiritually. And I think he also means, and this is even more important, the kingdom is found wherever the king has his rule. Wherever Jesus has rule means whenever he has loyalty. Whenever you have somebody's hearts captured, that's where he rules. So it's not a physical plane, it's a spiritual plane. So even though I'm here, I can fly to Russia and still be under his reign. It's not a domain, it's a domination of a person's soul. The Pharisees don't like this, because number one, it's too subjective. Turn to John chapter 3. Pharisees wanted to see things. And there was one by the name of Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John who, who doesn't get this spiritual idea of you enter through faith. John 3, starting in verse 2, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God. And that you, uh, no one can do these signs that we see without God being with them. So he's, rule, he's judging Jesus' action by his signs, which is given to the Jews. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what he's saying, you want to enter the kingdom? You must be born again. It's a spiritual reality. Being born again means when I have faith in Christ, the Spirit rebirths me in a, as a spiritual man. But Nicodemus doesn't get this. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do you marvel that I said to you, you must be born again? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So what he's saying is, to a degree, entering the kingdom is not only not observable, but it's rather subjective because it's the Spirit who does it. You have to be born again. It's a very key concept in Scripture. Do you want to be a member of God's kingdom? You've got to enter by faith. Second thing that uh, 
why this was hard for the Pharisees is because Jesus himself was an offense to them. And if you're offended by the king, you're not going to accept his rule. If you're offended by the king, you're not going to accept his rule. Christianity is Christ. And me giving my loyalty completely to him. In John chapter, you don't have to turn there, but this whole discussion in John 8, Jesus says to the Jews, because you do not accept me, you don't accept God. Jesus is God's emissary. He's the one that God has sent. If we want to go to God's kingdom, you have to accept Christ. You just do. All this fallacy about there's so many other ways to God other than Jesus. To say that he's the way, the truth, and the life, it, it is just so kind of limiting. No, it's not limiting. Is the only way into the kingdom. He's the door. If you want to read the argument, read John 8, 41 to 47. Jesus saying, when you assume you're in the kingdom by what you see, but you don't receive me, you are not in the kingdom. So instead of waiting for God to vanquish your foes, the Jews better be careful because he's going to come to vanquish them. It's crazy, but they didn't get it. So to me, before we go to the next one, some of you are religious, very, very religious people. You think you have to go to church. Why? Because I have to go to church. You have to dress the right way. You're looking for signs. Some of you are reading books like The Harbinger. How do I know the blood moons and all that is getting close? You want to know how you enter the kingdom and how it comes near is you receive the gospel. Are you born again? Are you? That is how you can tell if you're part of the kingdom. You receive Jesus as your king. You're loyal to him. You're loyal to him when you make your decisions. You're loyal to him when you're with your friends. You honor him. This brings us to the second group, the disciples, those who already received him by faith, those who are loyal to Jesus. Here's what Jesus says to them, verse 22 to 24. If you notice, he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and will not see it. There's going to be a day when you just want to see him take over, his rule, the day when he sets up his throne and they will say to you look there it's over there or look here it's here but don't listen to them do not go out or follow them for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other so will be the son of man in his day what does that mean jesus in verse 24 is actually saying when you see lightning in the sky, you will see it from one end of the sky to the other. So will it be when I arrive. You will know it. Observably, you'll see it. But until that day comes, until that day comes, when you observe me in the sky coming, don't be gullible and think I've already arrived. He is now speaking to the error of everything turning everything into subjective spiritual experience. If I feel something, then it must be true. You'll understand what I mean in a second. Jesus proceeds in verse 22. He says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Why will they desire? Because 
the, the, he's talking to the disciples who become the apostles, and they're going to undergo incredible suffering. And he's going to say, you are going to want to see Jesus come to relieve you of the suffering. Actually, that's what Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is all about. God will repay back trouble to those who trouble you. And there will be this desire, this deep desire to see Jesus because you grow tired, weary, and you're, you don't want to wait anymore. I'm sick of this world. I'm sick of, I just am tired of this Christianity. Have you ever questioned yourself, wondering if you really are a citizen of the kingdom? Or have you wondered if the Spirit's in your life? Have you ever just grown tired of waiting? Desire addresses this need to feel okay, to have proof that I'm okay. I want to be certain that when he comes, I'm a part, or I am just tired of fighting. Jesus says to the hungry disciple, the one who's desires of his arrival, you won't see it until he visibly comes. Because in verse 24, Jesus is telling us when he comes to physically set up the kingdom, you will know it. Listen to verse 24 again. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. Look at verse 29. On the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rain from heaven destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. There will be amazing calamitous things happening, and you're going to know it when he's revealed. You will know it. Revelations 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So let's just kind of say to the Pharisees, you enter the kingdom by faith. And yet, there is coming a day when that faith is going to be turned into sight for the disciple, but not yet. That's what I mean by not yet. You will not see it, according to verse 23. They will say, look there, or look here. Do not go out and follow them. You're not going to see his arrival. Until his physical appearance, many people will try to convince you he has arrived. Don't you believe it until you see it. This is a key thing. Because human desire is a powerful persuader. Desire is powerful. If you want something enough, you will believe almost anything. That is why people play the lottery. That is why people play the lottery. Even though the odds are never in your favor, people still think they can win because desire gets them convinced that I'm the next one to strike it rich. The desire to have Jesus clean up this world and rescue you is a powerful one. I want it. I do. But if we're not careful, at this point, desire can morph into what I call religious sentimentality. And this is dangerous water. If you're not careful, sentimentality will make you susceptible to the false claims that are flying all around. Other people say stuff like, if you really are a child of God, don't you think he wants to take care of you? Well, yeah, I do. Maybe the reason he hasn't is because you haven't believed strong enough. Maybe you'd be a stronger believer. People say, you know, strong faith 
is how I get Jesus to just come and take over everything. Once saw a preacher said, next year at this time, Jesus is going to come right here on this stage. We just have to believe it. I want to see Jesus. I really do. I want him to come back. But thinking I have any say in his arrival or making his kingdom more real and present because I have a positive mental attitude or I have a strength of belief or I have these feelings that are overwhelmed. I know he's coming. It doesn't make him come any sooner. But it's persuasive. Some disciples are really persuasive with their feelings. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of people who haven't necessarily listened to this warning. In 1 Timothy 1.4, it says there will be people that come along, and not only will they be sentimental, but they will start getting you to follow myths. Missler myth, M-Y-T-H, is a made-up story. It's a made-up story about Jesus and his kingdom. I'll tell you a quick sidetrack. There's two sides of this myth make. There's a lot of myth making going on. One we call cults. The other we will show you aberrant forms of Christianity. You've probably heard on the cult side Reverend Jims Jones or Charlie Manson, David Koresh, who all claim they are messianic figures. Well, there's a lot of gullible people who desired for the Messiah to come back so much they followed them to their demise. The Jehovah Witnesses is a pseudo-Christian group, I'm calling it a cult, that teaches their followers that the kingdom is already here. Do you know it's here? It's just invisible. And 144,000 people are ruling it from heaven right now, but it's here right now. Desire makes you susceptible to myth-making. It just does. But there's been a lot of myth-making in certain factions of the Christian church especially since what has been called the third wave movement of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you ever heard of it. I'm not going to go deep into it. But there's what's called dominion theology and the manifest sons of God theology. I'll just explain it to you real quick. And what you'll see is some of this teaching, this is the extreme form, but some of it creeps in in different ways. The manifest sons of God theology is a, what I'd say it's a tremendous creative myth where they've taken Romans 8.19 in the King James and twisted it, saying there will be a day when the, the sons of God will be revealed, or manifest, made manifest. Manifest means you will see these sons of God come out. And they believe it's talking in present tense, these amazing sons of God. And they said the way you'll see it is, first of all, it's going to come through a teaching of new apostles, it's going to be all these new apostles, a powerful emerging group of Christian leaders who have the power to remake and restart the church in its original form. You know, the last 2,000 years of the church has been polluted by institutional church. We need to have a clean bride for God, and we're going to call all these denominations that are splintered off to come back and be unified in one. And when we get them together the one, we will be unified in convincing the world we're the truth, and all these false religions will come to the one true church through this new teaching of the apostles. And these new apostles will be able to heal, exercise demon, and even raise the dead. These new apostles are going to form an elite army of powerful soldiers. They're going to be called Joel's army, because Joel... The day you'll be able to dream dreams. The wine of Joel will be poured out. 
This new army, Joel's army, will learn how to harness the Holy Spirit to such a degree they'll be able to morph and change reality. These battalions of sold-out believers will so strongly assert the promises of God that they will be able to change everything they see. They will be able to name it and claim it, and instantly they'll have dominion. So if you're a part of Joel's army, you can go fishing. You don't even need a hook. You don't even need a line. You just say, fish, I claim dominion, and they'll start hopping in your boat. People teach this. Some people say we are going to this new army. We'll be able to bind Satan, kind of chain him up with their words. Stop his action. I bind you with these words. And and those words are powerful. And then they will use prayer walks to drive demons from whole towns. If I walk around a town and pray and I can push him out of town, he won't have town. If we do this in enough towns, man, where do you see what happens in the third thing? But then we, they also believe that when the way we get power is we come and we sing. And when we sing, it opens up downpours of God's blessing. So when I leave, I am strong. It's God's army. And then you have, because everything's been pushed out of the way, God has, people have taken over territory that has cleared the land, cleared the way for these angels to come down and heal the land, bring streams of water to the desert, turn swords into plowshares and purify everything of evil. So then when the world is finally purified of evil, Jesus can come, finally called the sons of God. These sons of God will be powerful. The whole problem with this belief is the interpretation is wrong of Romans 8. Go to Romans 8 a second. What you're going to see it's actually it's just the opposite. Romans 8 Right? They forget verse 17. Starting in verse 15 and 16, it says, If we are his children, we will cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. That means we've entered the kingdom. We sit on the throne with God. We are co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we will be glorified with him, but we will be, the issue is right now, are you suffering with him? It doesn't sound like dominance. Because let's, um, let's go back to Luke 17, and I'll show you what I mean by that. Luke 17. Verse 25 to 30. It's interesting how it says in 1 Thessalonians, the Lord will descend, will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Until that time, we're to walk humbly, live by faith, and wait for his arrival because we're being conformed into the image of Christ, according to Romans 8.25. But if we go back to Luke 17, 25 to 30, this is where we are at biblically in the story, in the time frame. 25 says... But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Meaning, verse 24, he's going to arrive in this clouds like lightning. But first, he must suffer many things. 
he must suffer many things, be rejected by this generation, verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until that day when Noah entered the ark and a flood came. He's, he's not saying eating and drinking, marrying and getting marriage is bad. He's saying life is going to go on just like it did in Noah, and then all of a sudden destruction came in a moment. It says the same thing, verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, which people are doing now, living life. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven, destroyed. It's instantaneous judgment and wrath. It's, so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let one who's on the house stop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. Verse 33 says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. So let's kind of just give you the biblical story. This is, let me sum up where we've come from, all right? So biblical story of the kingdom. Oh, by the way, when, when the angels come and they renovate the world, that's the year of Jubilee. You know, these are the days of, behold, he, he come, riding in the clouds. You know that song? That's sort of what that song's about. Anyhow, Jared loves that song. Go to the next slide. But here's the biblical kingdom story. This is the biblical kingdom story. Already is in reference to justification by faith. So when we believe in Christ, we are justified. That means in the eyes of God, we are accepted and we have been given a stamp of approval to be part of his kingdom. There's going to come a day when he comes out of the sky like lightning and he just takes us up. We're going to be changed in an instant. That day is called glorification. Glorification is the moment we are changed. But in the meantime, we live in verse 33. Verse 33 is really in reference to verse 25 and 33. Verse 25, but first he must suffer many things. We are to follow the example, and this is called sanctification. Being made holy like him, conformed into his image. Remember, look at verse 33 again. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Sons, manifest sons of God say, I'm going to claim my life. This is saying, follow Jesus to the cross. Why did Jesus suffer to conquer sin? And now this is what we are asked to daily do to allow sin to be conquered in our life. Jesus says in John 15, 20, 21, that the servant is not above the master. And he's saying it in reference to this. Listen to what he says in John 15, 20, 21. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. They will treat you like this on account of my name. Why? Why will this happen to us? Why do we have to go through the way of the cross? Because... God wants holy people to rule and reign with him. And the process of sanctification is what makes us different on the inside. You can look at it like this. When your son or daughter turns 16, they are legally able to drive. Do you just give them the keys and say, go? You better make sure they know how to control a car so they go through driver's training, they go through driver's ed, and you drive hours with them. Why? Because 
you got to make sure when they're on their own to rule that car, they can do it in the same way we are going to be handed over the world. We are going to be handed over everything in the eternity. We're going to judge angels. But if we aren't conformed to Christ's image, it will be a nightmare. And I know he'll do it in the twinkling of an eye, but we are going to have memories in heaven of this earth. This earth is for a reason to train us to love him. And so sanctification takes time. Our microwave, Wi-Fi, immediate culture does not like waiting. We do not like struggling. I would rather walk around the earth like a god than battle with pain, weakness, and constant failure. I hate it. But I'm the brother of the king. Where's my victory? I'm Jesus' brother. But I'm also a servant. And the servant should, shouldn't expect to have a life better than the master, should he? Look at verse 32. It's the second shortest verse in the New Testament. The shortest verse is Jesus wept. This is remember Lot's wife. Until Jesus comes, life is going to go on as normal. It's going to go on as normal. We'll be eating, drinking, marrying. But in our waiting, we tend to forget who we are and what we will be. So our tendency is to get comfortable. Forgetting the kingdom is not yet. This isn't it. So when we wait, we have a tendency to accumulate, to hold on, to compete for power, to be distracted by the constant amusements of worldly pleasure. It just takes us over. That is why Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Do you remember her? I'll remind you. She's from the town of Sodom. It says the people of Sodom were well-fed, haughty, and addicted to all kind of twisted evil. Her husband Lot was considered a righteous man, so God warned him and his family to leave. They were told to leave immediately because judgment was coming. As they left town, as they left town, the angel told them, don't look back. Specifically, he said, don't look back. But as they headed out, Lot's wife looked back. It is never smart to ignore the advice of an angel. Not wise. She was turned into a pillar of salt. Stuck there. That's a warning for all of us to not hold tightly to the pleasures and accumulated things of this world. Action as at Moody Founders Week this week, Michael Easley said, the best description he can give of this world is a clean bus station. And he said, have you ever been to a bus station? He said, the five-second rule does not, it does not apply. Actually, right when you drop it before it hits the floor, it still doesn't apply because usually it's that dirty. He said, we are in a clean bus station. She's turned into a pillar of salt. If that warning isn't enough, it gets worse. As we read 34 and 35, I tell you, in that night, meaning when Jesus comes back, in that night, there will be two people in one bed, and this is husband and wife. And the idea is that, you know what? Not every husband and wife are on the same page. One might be taken and one might remain. And then it says, there will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left, meaning two ladies Probably their sisters or relatives working the same field, but when Jesus comes back, one will stay and one will 
be taken out. There's, some, there's a lot of discussion. Is this talking about the rapture? Those who are his will be taken? Or is this the second coming? Because this is to the Jews. Because on the second coming, it's scarier. Those who remain are in. Those who are taken are brought before the judgment seat. So is this the rapture, the second coming? I don't know. The point, though, is very simple. Here's the point. Kingdom people are not recognizable through mere observation and outward signs. It's a matter of the heart. So beware when you start seeing vultures gathering. In uh, Mike, Mike Shane knows I'm kind of a Twilight Zone nut. And there's one Twilight Zone. I watched it a couple weeks ago with my son Joseph, and it's odd. It's an odd Twilight Zone. If you know the Twilight Zone, it's a 1960s TV show, black and white, Rod Serling, talk like that kind of talk like that. In Rod Serling, he had this one about this gangster, this terrible gangster. And he's, he's bad, really bad. And he's running away from the cops. He's trying to climb a wall. When he's climbing a the wall, they shoot him right in the back. Boom, boom. And the guy dies. And then the camera fades out. And when it fades back in, he wakes up and he's in this lavish hotel. And up at the, his table is laden with food. And he's got this guy, this butler that comes in and he's got a white coat on and he's got a white beard sharp and I don't know let's say the guy's name's Muggsy or Bugsy he says what can I get you you can have whatever you want the guy said I can have whatever I want he gets him anything get some new suit new car get some ladies get some get he gambles and every time he goes to the casino he wins he can eat anything and he, I mean for days and days he's getting everything he wants and after a while he's like I'm, I'm winning everything I get everything I want to but I'm, not, I'm just not happy. What, what is this? And he says, let me take you somewhere. And they go up these stairs, and up at the stairs is the records room. And it's the records room for those who are accountable and to be judged. And his name was there. And he said, so wait a minute. You're telling me I'm in hell right now? But how come I'm getting everything? But he's lonely. And I think when we live on this earth, we think... Life is accumulation. I want to have the nicest clothes, the best food, everything. But if you don't have love, if you don't know the king, you have nothing. Zero. It's not worth it. Sort of like I like to say this to dates. This is Valentine's Day week. Two days from now is Valentine's Day. You want to do a great date with your bride or your wife or your girlfriend. Go to a, go to a field and watch cows eat grass. Just watch them. It's so exciting to watch cows get fat and fat and fat, waiting for slaughter. That's what a lot of us are, just fat people who consume and consume and consume, but we don't love, we're angry, we're critical, and we get mad because we want to consume more and when people stop us from consuming and getting what we want, we are fat cows. But heaven is Christ. Christ is love. And he's the kingdom. Do you have him? Do you have him?
because he's everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Scripture, for Jesus' very clear and honest warnings. Help us, God, to know. Help us to know that we're yours and that we have your spirit in a life. Thank you, Father, for everything you do. In Christ's name we pray.